If you would, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. This morning is the last week in our series on the topic of corporate worship. If you'll recall, the beginning of this series, I made a bold point, one that I am still firmly convinced is true, that corporate worship is absolutely critical in the life of a disciple, indispensable, necessary, one of the most important things that we engage in in our week. And each sermon has been an attempt to demonstrate from Scripture why it is so important and give different reasons for its importance. On the first week, we learned a basic principle that we reflect what we worship. We reflect what we worship. And in corporate worship, we saw from Hebrews 12, for example, that something happens here that is special, that we actually meet with God in a way different than the way that we meet with God in our own personal devotions or even in our small group Bible studies. God has promised in His Word that when we gather for corporate worship, He is present with us in a special way. And therefore, we behold God when we come to worship. And as we behold God with hearts engaged, with faith, we increasingly become like God. When we behold Christ, we become more like Christ. And isn't that the goal of all of discipleship? In the second week, we learned another principle that our corporate worship ought to be regulated by God's Word. God has told us how we are to worship. He's given us elements for our worship services, five of them at least. We are called to read and to preach the Word, to sing and to pray and to observe the Lord's Supper and baptism, two of the ordinances of the church. These are God's means of grace, His prescribed ways that He has given to the church to make them more like Jesus. And in corporate worship, and we have the word and prayer outside of corporate worship, but here there is such a high concentration of the means of grace, it makes this moment so important in our week. Last week we talked about the order of our service. We said that the order of our service is meant to re-present the gospel in a similar way that God reiterated His covenant to the people in the Old Testament through a structure. We here rehearse God's covenant commitment to us each Sunday morning, and we need that so desperately. This morning, I want to offer a fourth reason why corporate worship is so important. We're going to talk about congregational singing this morning. This is one of the five elements that we talked about that are regulated by God's Word. They are commanded to do in our corporate worship together. So I'm focusing on one of them. I guess I could have done a sermon on each of the elements that God has called us to, but I have chose to just focus on this one in this series. Why have I done that? 
What's interesting to me, I'm going to get to my point of why, but to start by saying it's interesting to me. In our day, music and singing are functional synonyms for worship. Think, for example, back to the worship wars of the 90s. Were the worship wars over baptism? They were over singing. They were over music. What do we call these people up on the stage that are leading us in singing and in music? The worship team. We call them the worship team. We've equated singing and music with worship. Another thing that is interesting is that it's not the sermon that is a part of the worship wars. It's not the baptism and the Lord's Supper. It, it is music. We don't, we don't call our communion servers the worship team. We call our musicians. Now, hopefully you've seen over the course of the last number of weeks that singing is only one part of our worship. The call to worship is part of worship. Reading scripture, our prayers, the preaching of the sermon, even the benediction, all of that is a part of worship. Singing is simply one part of that. But with that said, and here is my point, it's a very important element in our worship together. And so therefore, it is critical that we understand what God's word says about it and understand how we are to to apply in our gathering what God has said about it. You know, God gives instructions for each of the regulated elements of worship, not just a command, but instructions on how to obey that command. So for example, Jesus, I mean, Paul calls the church to pray in our corporate worship service, but he's also given instructions how to pray. I mean, Jesus gave instruction in the Lord's Prayer, but also Paul in 1 Timothy 2. He tells us the types of prayers that we are to offer, supplications, intercessions, thanksgiving. He tells us the types of people that we are to pray for. We're to pray for all people. We're to pray for the government. We're to pray for the church. We're to pray for the lost who are outside of the church, that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We see the same thing in preaching. Paul calls pastors to preach, but he doesn't stop there. We're not left to figure out what we're to do. He tells us to preach the word, the Bible. He tells us to preach Christ and him crucified. He tells us how to go about our work, that we need to be faithful to rightly divide the word of truth. He tells us what to do in our sermons, that we are to rebuke and we are to exhort and we are to teach with all patience. So not just a command, but instructions on how to observe that command. We see the same thing with singing. Paul calls the church to sing, but then he also tells them why they're to do that. And he tells them the types of songs that they are to sing in their worship. We find this in Colossians 3.16. So unlike the previous weeks, I'm going to focus most of my attention on one passage instead of looking at multiple passages. For some of you, that will be a breath of fresh air. Actually, just one verse, although we're going to be in the whole book of Colossians, and I want you to pay attention to that. So let me begin by 
reading this verse and then seeking to explain it and show how we seek to apply it here. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, I don't like to quibble with translations much. You've you've got a good translation, but there's some slight things in this translation, um, just mainly with the word order, that I think obscure the way that it's structured. And I'm going to base my sermon on the structure of the original, so I thought I may let you see my, uh, I mean, it's roughly the words of the ESV, but I've rearranged the order and some of the prepositions a little bit. So here it is on the screen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the first subsection. Then the next, with thankfulness in your hearts, singing to God. Slightly different. Begins with the command, just like the translation that we have, that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Then these two prepositional phrases introduce the two ways that this will happen. First, in all wisdom, the Colossians should teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But secondly, with thankfulness in their hearts, they should sing to God. So with this structure in mind, I'll have one overarching point and then two subordinate points about congregational singing. So let's begin with the overarching point. The gospel must grow deep in God's people. That's my understanding of what Paul is saying at the beginning of the verse when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I believe the word of Christ here is referring to the word about Christ. It's referring, in other words, to the gospel. Let me try and make my claim. Look back at The beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 5. So we've just heard about the word of Christ. Here Paul speaks of the word of truth that the Colossians believed. And he says that word of truth is the gospel. Toward the end of the chapter in verse 25, chapter 125, he says, God made him, Paul, a minister in order to make the word of God. Fully known. So, word of Christ in our verse, word of truth, word of God. And that word of God, if you look at verse 26, was the mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed to believers. In Paul, that word mystery doesn't mean, ooh, it's mysterious, it's confusing. It means something that was hidden in the past and now has been made known. And what has been made known is the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. He goes on in chapter 1, verse 28, to say that this, his word ministry, the, the word of God ministry that he's called to, he proclaims Christ, admonishing and teaching in all wisdom. Well, that same phrase, I hope you'll notice, admonishing and teaching with all wisdom, is also found in our main text this morning, right after mentioning the word of Christ. So what does all of this add up to? It seems to indicate that the word of Christ is this word of truth. It's the word of God about Christ. It's God's mystery that has been made known to us, his plan of salvation in Christ and a plan that is the very wisdom of God. In other words, it's the gospel about Jesus and Paul wants that gospel to grow deeply in God's people. But why is this so important to Paul? If we're going to understand chapter 3, verse 16, we need to understand something of the historical context, the broader context that this verse fits into. So what is Paul addressing here? Why is the word of Christ dwelling richly in the Colossian church so important to him? Well, for the original audience... There was an outside threat to the gospel. There was a different word than the word of truth. There was a false wisdom contrasting the wisdom of the gospel. And it was floating around Colossae and had had some influence on the church. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Paul warns the church... See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Same root word there as for wisdom. And empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In verse 23, Paul speaks of this philosophy as something that has the appearance of wisdom, but it is of no value. So whatever this false teaching was, it was different than the wisdom of God, different from the word of truth, different from the gospel. And you'll notice throughout the book, the word fullness, it's one of the main repeated words that something about this teaching promised a fullness outside of Christ. It promoted some type of knowledge outside of Christ. But Paul says very clearly in chapter two, verse nine. The wisdom of the gospel teaches us that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in Christ, if you want to talk about fullness, Christ has the full fullness of God dwelling in him bodily. And then get this, if we are in Christ, that fullness is in us. We have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So what's the message? The church doesn't need any other fullness. They have the fullness of Christ dwelling in them. And yet they still need to grow in that. They need to be protected from false teaching, but they also need to increasingly live lives that are in accord with the gospel, that are an overflow of the fullness of Christ that is in them. Here's the point. 
friends, you've heard me say this so many times. We don't ever graduate from the gospel. We don't ever get over it. We don't ever get beyond it. It's not just something in the rearview mirror of our life that we believed when we became Christians. The gospel permeates all of our lives. We need to continue to grow in our understanding of it. It, Hear me on that. I hear people say all the time, we've got enough head knowledge. We need to get on with the practical. You don't have enough head knowledge. You will never come fully in this life to grasp the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep learning. Keep growing. But even beyond a greater understanding and sound doctrine, we also need to grow in the application of the gospel. This was all so important to Paul that he begins his letter with prayer. He knows the only way this will happen is if God works. And so notice in chapter 1, verse 9, he prays that the church, here's our word, would be filled with the knowledge of his will. He's speaking to Christians in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is gospel language. So as to, or in other words, with the purpose of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the gospel needs to grow deeper so that it will overflow in your life. But he not only prays that the gospel would grow deep, he goes on to say, The whole point of his preaching ministry is for this very purpose. Look in verse 25 of chapter 1. He says he became a minister to make the word, you've already heard me say this, the word of God fully known. He wants the gospel to grow deep. And in verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal of the gospel growing deep is that we would become more like Christ. Paul is intent on this. He earnestly desires this for the church to bear fruit. And so what does he do? We're told he struggles in prayer to this end. 129, that he struggles in his preaching ministry to this end, that the gospel would grow deep and that we would become more like Jesus. That's what's behind, okay? That's the context. That's the force behind what we read in Colossians 3.16. But notice something remarkable. Notice how the word of Christ will dwell richly, which by the way, the word there is fully. How will the word of Christ dwell fully? He's already dealt with it in prayer. He's already dealt with it in preaching. Two things that are really important to us in corporate worship, right? But notice now the language that he uses is the same language of his teaching and preaching ministry, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. But now he applies it to something different than preaching, which leads to the first way that the gospel grows deep in God's people. It is this. The gospel grows deep through singing to one another word-rich songs. 
So he calls the church to let the word of Christ dwell in them. And how will that happen? Notice the logic of the verse. Through teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, gospel work. But then he goes a step further and says, it's going to happen through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Get this, friends. I really want you to get this. Everyone in the church, not simply the preachers in the church, have a responsibility to teach and to admonish, to proclaim to one another the wisdom of the gospel. And the way they do that is through singing. As we gather for corporate worship, there are a lot of different ministry roles that are involved in all of this. But there is one ministry role that we all share in common. One ministry role that we all share in common. We are all called to gospel ministry and we exercise that gospel ministry through music ministry. Everybody in this congregation is a part of the music team. Everybody in this congregation has music ministry responsibilities when you walk in that door. This is a responsibility that has been given to us by command in God's Word. It's not simply for people who are into music and singing. It is for people who have been saved by Jesus and are a part of His church. It's a way that the gospel grows deep in God's people. And while I hope for some of you this is an aha moment, Maybe a surprise for you that we teach through singing and that everybody's called to this. But on the other hand, doesn't it make perfect sense? I mean, think about the power of music. Think about the power of song. In some ways, music can be a more effective communicator of God's truth than any other medium because of the ease with which it can be internalized and memorized and brought to mind, sometimes spontaneously, throughout the day. Martin Luther said, Music and notes, I love this, are wonderful gifts in creation of God. And they help gain a better understanding of the text, especially when sung by a congregation, and get this, sung earnestly. We are made better and stronger in faith when His holy word is impressed upon our hearts by sweet music. Last week, we talked about the way God ministers to us in corporate worship, how He reveals the gospel to us, and we then respond to Him. There's this revelation response rhythm in our worship, a vertical relationship between God And the church purchased with the blood of Christ. But here we see there's also a horizontal dimension to our gathering where we minister to one another. To give more proof that this is an emphasis in this passage, I want you to just notice, I mean, we're looking at one verse in an amazing book. Maybe we'll get to it later. But just notice the verses right around it. What are they all about? They're all about our love for one another in the body. Look at verse 13. We're called to bear with one another. 
to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us. Verse 14, we're called to put on love. Verse 15, to basically pursue peace in the body of Christ. Well, what's verse 16? He's continuing on the same strain of thought, of instructions about how we live our lives together in the church. But in this context, he says we do that, not just through forgiving one another, bearing with one another, but also singing to one another in the body. It's not only vertical, it's also horizontal. One of the many responsibilities that we have to one another and a common responsibility that we have. So that's why at First Free, we emphasize what we call congregational singing. Real revolutionary word, real novel. Congregational singing. Some people will ask me, what's your style of worship? Which they mean, what's your style of music? And I'll say it's congregational. In our Worship by the Word document, which distills this whole series onto one page, we have a phrase that says, the voice of the congregation will be the primary instrument. This is an instrument, and we want it to be primary. That's why we also work hard to make sure that the songs that we sing are singable. It's kind of hard to sing something that's not singable. We don't always do that well, but it is our aim that we try to do. It's also one of the reasons we're intent on keeping the volume of the instruments at a level below what the voice of the whole congregation is so that we can hear one another. I'll sometimes debate this with other pastors in the community or around the country And I just say, look, you don't need to adopt our perspective. Everybody has a different approach to this, but you have to grapple with Colossians 3.16. If we're called to sing to one another, the songs we sing must be singable and we must be able to hear one another. And I would say we need to be able to see one another as well. How can we fulfill this command if we don't sing and if we can't hear one another singing. But it's not just that we sing and that we can hear one another. What we sing is really important as well. What's Paul trying to get done with singing? The word of Christ dwell richly in us. So he tells us that we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Everything so far, I think, is pretty clear from the text. This one is more difficult. What does he mean by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They're basically, this is an oversimplification, but basically two camps regarding interpretation of these words. Some see it as simply a reference to the 150 canonical psalms in the middle of our Bible. All three words are referring to those particular songs, the songbook, as well as the prayer book. Of the Bible. This group of interpreters comes to this conclusion through a number of ways. I've read so much on this and still have a shallow understanding, but I'm just going to highlight a few. One reason for this interpretation is that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. 
Above all of the Psalms in our Bible, you'll notice there's inscriptions. That's part of the book of Psalms. It's not, it's part of it. And in a lot of those inscriptions, you'll see Greek words in the Septuagint that are the same as the Greek words for Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, you know, a Psalm of Asaph, a song. It's not a different thing. It's the same kind of thing. You'll see the same word for him in the Psalms as well. Those in this first camp also appeal to the fact, which I think needs thought through, that there are no clear references in the New Testament of people singing songs other than those which are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even they would say that word spiritual at the end of the verse, spiritual songs, actually modifies the whole group. That it's songs that are inspired by the Holy Spirit that we are called to sing. One thing to notice, you would say, uh, well, I mean, we know that following the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples, they sang a hymn. Well, it, it actually says they were hymning. And we know from the historical context that what they were likely hymning was the Egyptian halal, which is Psalms 111 through 118. So even there, a reference to Scripture. I don't think we can dismiss this view so quickly. The second group of interpreters sees psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as a reference to three different types of songs. And this is obviously the most common view today. But isn't it interesting how many people apply it? You can actually buy hymnals that divide it that way. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And what, what songs do they put in the hymns category? Stuff written in the 18th, 19th, 20th century. I don't think Paul had those in mind when he was writing Colossians 3 in the first century. Or they'll say, well, the spiritual songs, um, uh, these are contemporary choruses. Maybe the Gaithers or the Gettys. I mean, come on. Uh, Paul doesn't have that in mind. When When we look at this verse in this way, we have to think through how would the original hearers have heard it. And most of the best scholars have a consistent approach, though it's not uniform. Most think that the Psalms, the first category, is a reference to the 150 canonical Psalms. Put that in your hip pocket. We're going to come back to it. What about the hymns? The Greek word here for hymns is only used twice in the New Testament, here and in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, but it's used regularly in ancient Greek, often to describe songs that were sung to a pagan deity or hero. And so what these interpreters will say is what the early church was doing was they were writing hymns like this, but instead of to pagan deities, they were writing them to Christ, who they believed to be God, the champion of our salvation. You see evidence of this in Pliny the Younger, who wrote a letter to Trajan describing the early church's worship services. He talks about how they're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it is light, 
And he says, and then they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as a God. Some will see, for example, Colossians 1, verses 19 to 23, is an example of a hymn to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn throughout all of creation. And you see how well-ordered and structured that section of Scripture is. You see something similar in Philippians 2. These could be hymns to speak of the deity of Christ. Spiritual songs, some refer to as spontaneous songs given by the Spirit, like you find in 1 Corinthians 14, or simply as a way of saying it's all of the rest of the types of songs, but they're spiritual. They're not secular. They're, they're, they're Christ-centered. Clearly, at first free, we don't hold to the view that Paul is referring only to the Psalms because we sing all kinds of things. But what do we learn from the command to sing the Psalms? I think there's two things that I want us to take away from this command. The first, and this is an appeal to myself, to our music leadership team, and as you'll see, to you as a congregation. While we don't hold to exclusive psalmody, as some traditions do, I want to call us to inclusive psalmody. We're commanded to sing the psalms. And throughout the history of the church, that has meant actually singing the psalms. Not singing snippets of the psalms. Not just simply writing songs that are based on the psalms. But actually following the flow, following the structure, following the words of the psalms. The second thing I think we need to learn about the command to sing the psalms is that we need to learn from the psalms the types of songs that we ought to be singing at first free. Think of the Psalter. I mean, I hope you read it and pray it regularly. It is vast in its coverage. There are all types of ways to address God and to respond to God with praise, with adoration, with thanksgiving, with supplication, with lament. A variety of ways of engaging God. A variety of motions that are emotions that are involved. John Calvin called the book of Psalms the anatomy of every part of the soul. The Bible also addresses almost every topic of theology. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of eschatology. It's all there, so much so that Luther called it the little Bible. It's in the middle of our Bible for a reason. That we would learn how to pray, that we would learn how to sing. We need to be taking our cues Hymn writers, songwriters need to be taking their cues from the inspired songbook of the Bible and evaluating what we sing by it. At the bottom line, at First Free, we believe that it is critical, this is what we say in our documentation, 
that we sing songs that are word-rich. What we mean by that is that they ought to actually include the very words from the Bible, like the Psalms do. Or like come and come praise and glorify, as we sang last week, which is essentially following the exact structure of Ephesians 1. Or songs like the choir and the worship team sang in the prelude, Is He Worthy? It's coming from Romans 8. It's coming from Revelation 4 and 5. Or the song they did in the middle, which is based so much on Psalm 95. We also want songs that exalt Christ as God, as our Savior, like the King and all of His beauty. Songs that retell the gospel like the solid rock and how deep the Father's love for us. If our songs are not word rich, they cannot serve the purpose Paul called us to sing. There is no other way to let the word of Christ dwell deeply in you if you're singing shallow music. But it's not only through singing to one another that the gospel grows deep. I want to end on an even more important point. That the gospel grows deep in us through singing to God. With heartfelt gratitude. I want you to notice yet another thing that you don't get from just looking at one verse, and that is this repeated theme in this section of Colossians on thankfulness. It's not just that the gospel would grow deep. That, that really matters to Paul. It's that thankfulness would erupt in our hearts and in our lives. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 17, Paul moves beyond corporate worship to our whole life of worship to God. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. At the heart of worship, hear me on this, at the heart of worship is a heart of gratitude to God for what he has done for us in Christ. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever for he is good. One way we know that the word of Christ is dwelling fully richly in us is how we respond to the gospel. We must respond to the grace of God in worship of God with thankfulness to God. If we don't, we have to ask ourselves Has the gospel grown deep enough in our hearts? Remember, there's a revelation response rhythm to our worship. God reveals himself in his word. We respond in prayer. We respond in singing. We respond in song. But one thing that's interesting about singing is it does both things. It reveals God's word. It reveals the gospel. It it is a thing that can carry theological gospel freight. And yet, it is also a mechanism by which we respond to that gospel at the same time. 
We are commanded to worship, but friends, command to sing and to worship God should not be the main thing you take away from this. It's not a drag. If you are actually captivated by the gospel, it should be a delight. God is actually, as we sang in two songs today, worthy of our worship. Do you believe it? When you get a sense of his worth, when you grasp the grace of the gospel, that God has dealt with our sins in Christ. He has reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. That we have been made right with God. When you get that, how can I keep from singing your praise? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? That should be the response. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, the heart sings. Get that. Not our mouth sings. It does. But the heart sings because it is overflowing with Christ. It is critical that our singing comes from the heart. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, I'm not an emotional person. We all respond in different ways emotionally. We don't all emote the same way. We don't all demonstrate that in the same way. And yet, if our heart is not moved, if our affections are not stirred by the grace of the gospel and the goodness and greatness of our God, we have to ask ourselves, has the gospel grown deep enough? In the Psalms, you see hearts gripped by God's steadfast love, a subjective, heartfelt response to God. However, it is never disconnected, divorced from the objective ways that God has revealed Himself, His character, and His mighty deeds. The subjective is always grounded in the objective. We respond to what has been revealed. And this is so appropriate. But it's not only a response. Paul seems to be indicated that as we respond to God, that is actually a way that the gospel is continuing to grow deep in us through responding to God with songs of thanks and praise. The gospel depth is necessary if we are going to overflow in praise. Not just praise with our lips, as Jordan said, but praise with our lives, which is why Paul ends where he does in verse 17 by saying that whatever we do, so we worship here, respond in praise and thanks, but then we leave here and he says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May we be captivated by his grace and may it overflow in lips and lives of praise. Would you pray with me? Father, it's one thing to seek humbly to rightly understand your word and we want to do that. 
But it's yet another thing to rightly respond to it. And so I pray that you would help us to do just that. That you would help us to see how important singing and corporate worship is because this is a way that the word of Christ dwells richly in us. That we would be committed to one another as we sing. And that we would be captivated by heartfelt thanks to you as we do that as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.